Okay, well, we are in the uh, third week of a four-week series on Exodus, and we, there is no way we're going to cover all of Exodus. That was never the goal. But we do hope that, my hope is that it will give you maybe a, a little bit of a framework for how to think about Exodus, and more than that, how to think about um, your, own, your own Exodus. Uh, Exodus is a story that in very vivid ways tells the story of salvation it, historically, and it tells the salvation of a people, but this salvation of a people looks a lot like our own individual salvation as well. There's a call out of darkness into light, a call out of slavery into freedom, a call from oppression and darkness into God's kingdom and to God's place. And the people are delivered by the mighty hand of God in, in profound ways that mirror what it looks like for us to be called from darkness into light. But there's this little, I don't know what you call it, there's this problem with Exodus, and it's a problem that we all wrestle with, I think, in the Christian life. I think it's one of the most pressing questions we have as Christians. If you're a follower of Jesus, this surely has at some point crossed your mind or will at some point cross your mind, which is why when uh, all the Egyptians drown in the Red Sea, why aren't my problems over? You know, why are there, why is, why is that not it? Why is that not it? Why do we have to spend 40 years in the wilderness? Why can't we just, I don't know, walk and step across the other side of the Red Sea into the promised land, into glory, into uh, all that we had hoped and been, uh, hoped for and been promised? Why? It's a very uh, common question. It's a very frustrating thing sometimes for us to ask because we think that it should be over. And actually one of the, the difficulties that we encounter if you've grown up in the church or been around the church for very long is there's actually people who will promise that everything after the drowning of the Egyptians is sort of like um, you sprout wings and you sort of fly like a, a, a fairy above it all. There the, the really is no wilderness. Don't believe the wilderness. I'm sorry. Whatever you think of that wilderness, just deny that and claim whatever it is that God gave you in the promised land. You're not really in the wilderness. And we live in a place where there's, there's people in our own circles who are telling us that the wilderness doesn't exist or that it shouldn't exist or that there's some trick, secret passageway through it so that you don't have to deal with it. And so what we want to look at is, is how we deal with our own exodus, our own life as Christians, our own, uh, for some of us, if we're not followers of Christ, one of the things that we want to call you to, we want to, uh, we want to place before you is the idea that there really is deliverance from the things that seek to destroy you, the things that seek to enslave you. And you might be saying, well, there's, there's nothing like that in my life. And I, I get that. But surely there are those things. So we want to be asking that question. How does Exodus actually set us on a footing for understanding what it looks like to be delivered in the great grand way? We would call that theologically justification. But how to be delivered in our daily lives, in the, the living this thing out, in the seeking to be a follower of Jesus. And we would theologically call that sanctification. That's what Exodus really paints a picture of, is how those two things fit together. And in some ways, it also gives us a, an idea of where we're going. This promised land, this place, this place that um, in our passage says, uh, the way it's translated, is, it says it flows with milk and honey. It actually, that it should be translated, it gushes with it. That all the delights and dreams and pleasures and hopes and everything we could ever want as human beings to feel satisfied and complete actually await us at the end of our journey. That's what Exodus really is about. It's giving us in story form and it's giving us in shadow form, but it is about that. So here's how we're going to do it today. I don't know if you... Um, some of you know this because you were with me at uh, a, a, another church here in town for a while. There was a group of us guys that would go regularly backpacking. This, this thing, I'm sorry, I'm going to be distracted. Keeps getting caught on my collar. Um, we would go backpacking and the... Um, 
three years we did this. The first year we went on a backpacking trip, we decided we were going to climb a 14er. So we went and we summited a 14,000 foot mountain. And basically that was the goal of, of our trip. That's all we did. And we were successful. It was a, it was a fun trip, even though I uh, hated most of it. Uh, one of the things I've learned about myself uh, along the way is that I am not a distance athlete. I don't have a very high VO2 max. My lung capacity is terrible. And so anything that requires me to endure over long distances, I think, uh, is, is torture. I have a student who wants me to run a marathon, and this is what I keep telling him. There's no way in the world... I'm running a marathon. Um, the second year, we did something similar, but not the same. It wasn't sort of destination-oriented. It was, it was, uh, was scenery-oriented, if you will. And we did this four-passage trip uh, right outside of Aspen where you, we actually did a loop through the backwoods, back uh, with the wilderness outside of Aspen, and we would cross through four 12,000-foot passes. So we never summited anything. But what that means, if you, that means you go up to 12,000 feet and down and then back up to 12,000 feet. But we did this along the way and, and, and we were actually able to be successful. And, and it was a great trip. But again, it was, uh, it was endurance. It was up and down. It was testing all of, all of my ability. And though it was beautiful, it was, it was difficult. So the next year we decided, okay, we're going to go somewhere and fish. <laughs> we're going to backpack in and we're just going to fish all day. And we thought, this is great. You get a little bit of the scenery, you pack in, you get the experience of carrying your stuff in. We're in the wilderness. And actually the place we decided to fish was a, a, a not so well-known lake, unless you read the guidebooks that tell you where the not so well-known lakes are. And um, back in, in the backwoods off of the beaten path a bit where, where we, could, we could camp and fish. And that's what we did. The first day we set out and we, we go down the trail. And the problem is, is that it is off the beaten path. And so there's a place to cut off to get to it, but we're not exactly sure where because we don't, we've never done this before. I don't think, well, there were no GPSs that we could have had. There was no way for us to really know this. The, the, the wasn't on the map, and so we'd gone by description, and we'd actually met a person on the trail who told us when to cut, about where to cut off and which direction to head. So we do, and several hours into it, we have still not arrived at any of the landmarks that we're looking for. And we have been off the trail, which if you've ever backpacked, it's the one thing you don't want to do, right? You don't want to walk through uh, bushes and around rocks and, and over things that you don't know they're coming up. And we are getting close to dusk, and we have still not found where we are on the map nor where we want to go. So overwhelming is the sense of how tired we are and how lost we are that one of the men not me, <laughs> breaks down. He can't go any further. I mean, he just, he, says he's, he really breaks down and says, I can't do this. And so immediately we shift in sort of emergency mode. We go and we find a flat place up ahead. And I'm, I run ahead um, and, and come back down and I say, Come on up. I found a place we can pitch our tents and we'll, we'll be able to be okay for the night. We can set up. We can eat. Uh, read, kind of get our, our wits about us and go on. Well, we spent all four days right in that place. <laughs> never found the lake. Never got our fishing stuff wet at all. Not at all. And, and in some ways, it was the, the most wasted trip I've ever been on. And I think that some of us feel like, that's me. That's me. We, we look at um, life, I think we tend to look at life, many of us in our lives have thought this way. We think that life is a series of choices, of forks in the road, of splits in the trail. And every time we make one of those choices, every time we take one or the other, we're either taking the good path or the bad path. We think that, um, and if we, we realize somewhere along the way we've taken the bad path, we think it's over. 
We get to the place where we think we're doomed, that we've set ourselves on a path that our lives are now defined by it. And all we can kind of do is sit and exist in this miserable place. Some of us think that way about our jobs. We look at our jobs and our careers, and, um, you know, I, I guess I, because I turned 40 uh, a, a year and a half ago, um, I started thinking about this, right? I'm 40. You know, where am I in my career? Where, where have I come? Has, is this really what I thought I would do with my life? Is this really what I'd hoped to, to be and to do? Is this the impact I'd hoped to make? And many of us have thought that, um, think that where we are is, is in the middle of nowhere and we're just stuck. Some of us have these fleeting thoughts about our spouses and the marriage choice we make. Did I make a mistake? Am, am I off the beaten path? Have, have God, have, have I lost all chance of blessing? Have I lost all chance of, of really reaching and arriving where I thought I would go? We think about it in terms of jobs, career, family. Maybe there's a particular sin that you think that has uh, placed you in no man's land. And because of it, you're just doomed to live there. So you're resigned to be sort of on God's plan B for your life. And probably if we're most honest, we think this way. We think that uh, we're off of plan A and we're on plan B. And somewhere along plan B, we still think that there were some good choices and bad choices to make. But we're now off to plan C, D, E, and F. Somewhere along the way, we, we just get stuck and we realize, I don't know where I am. I don't know how to get back where I'm going. I'm lost. Our passage today talks us through finding our way wherever we are. Hear me, not finding our way back. Not finding our way back to the fork in the road so that we can undo the choice we made. But finding our way where we are. So if you will, please turn to Exodus chapter 3. Actually, starting in the last part of chapter 2. And I ask that if you're able to please stand for the reading of God's Word. Verse 23 of chapter 2. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness. And he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up. Out of the land to a good and broad land, a land gushing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. 
And he said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you. I have sent you, the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. The word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. You may be seated. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that um, you have gathered us here. That wherever we are, however far afield we are in our lives, however far afield we feel or really are, whatever those things are that, that um, come to mind as those um, ill-conceived paths that we've taken, you've brought us here and you meet with us here. Lord, I pray that you would meet with your people. I pray that you would call us to yourself. And those who are here who are have not trusted in Christ, we pray that you would speak. That you would speak so that we might be called from darkness to light. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we have... Um, now found Moses, and Moses becomes the key figure. It narrows the, the the story narrows in very quickly in in Exodus chapter two on his life and who he is. Um, but we're told something about Moses very early on that I think sets the tone for what's going on here. Look there in verse one. Uh, we're told that Moses is keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And that he's led his flock to the west side of the wilderness. Now, last week we talked about the wilderness as being this place of, of outside, this place of wandering, this place that surely Moses would have never thought he would go. Uh, he actually is, is in some sense driven to the wilderness because he has killed a man. He's killed an Egyptian man, and the pharaohs found out about it, and he has to flee his country and his countrymen and his family and all that he knows. Uh, the second thing, though, we, 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 the other things that we need to see about this is that not only has Moses fled, but he's fled and, and he's become a shepherd. He has gone from, uh, it's, it's not the story of, um, of a pauper to prince, it's the story of a prince to a pauper. It's the story of one who has all the prestige and glory and honor that all human uh, ideas of those things seek. He had it all. He had wealth. He had position. He had power. He had fame. All of it. Everything that the world would tell you is, is what brings satisfaction to your life, what brings hope to your life, what brings uh, uh, completeness to who you are. Moses had it. And it's gone. It's gone. He's, he's left it out of, um, forced out of it in some sense because of an intemperate act, but a compassionate act. Uh, he was acting on behalf of one of his countrymen who was being abused and treated unjustly. And so Moses steps in and he acts on the behalf of his countrymen, murders somebody, kills them, and has to flee so not only has he uh, gone from glory to obscurity, he has also gone from a, a, a position that brings honor to a position that uh, brings disdain. He's a shepherd. And while as, as people familiar with the biblical idea of shepherd, we think, oh, that's a great thing. But in his culture, in his world, it was uh, considered an abomination. Go to Genesis 46, verse 34, to see that described. The Egyptians considered what he was doing to be an abomination, the lowest of the low. Not only that, he's now been there for 40 years. 40 years in obscurity. 40 years in isolation, 40 years in this strange place, 40 years alienated from all that he knows in terms of his, his upbringing, his culture, his family, living among Gentiles, tending sheep, very, very obscure. 
And the way that the text gets at this is even, I think, more specific in verse 1 that I read. Uh, our translation says that he's on the west side of the wilderness. That actually it should be translated he's on the back side of the wilderness. He's, on, he's, he's behind the wilderness. He's gone so far afield that we don't even know where it is. He's completely out of, even out of sight. He, he's, he's so far gone that the way it's described is that he's behind the wilderness. I just want to ask you again, do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel like that defines you, that, that somehow you're so far gone that there's not even a place on the map that describes where you are? Well, what I want you to see is that in this text, that's the place of encounter with God. And that actually, ordinarily, maybe, maybe always, I don't, I don't have a proof text for this, but ordinarily, those are the places that God meets people. Those are the places where God finds us. And, and those are um, the places where God actually comes and we meet Him. So the first thing we've got to understand about ourselves and our detours, the places where we have found ourselves and we feel so removed from God that he could never find us, that actually what this text wants us to see is that's where he finds us. That's actually where he comes and meets Moses. It's on this complete detour from what he thought his life would be. You've got to imagine that Moses, growing up in the Pharaoh's court, had things whispered in his ear about what he was going to be one day, right? I mean, that makes sense. I mean, we do that with our children. We tell our children how we try to give them a vision of what we believe, that they, they, uh, the gifts they have and what we believe for them in terms of what God will do for them. And we speak those things to them. Surely Pharaoh had, I mean, Moses had some idea of what his position in life and where he was going would be, and this is not it. He's in obscurity. He's behind the desert and this is where God meets him. In order to see and move, to move from where we are to encounter, is to encounter God where we are. Part of understanding about our life where we are, not getting back to some other place, is to actually encounter God here, wherever that is. Wherever you are, part of what we've got to understand is that God wants to and will and does meet people right where you are. And so we've got to ask ourselves, what, is, what does that encounter look like? Well, what does it look like to encounter God where you are? How do we do that? Is there anything that we can do along those lines? Well, We'll move on. The second thing then we see is that uh, the place where God meets us is where we are. And if that's on the backside of the wilderness, that's where he meets us. The second thing we see is that he meets us in, uh, here he meets Moses in a burning bush. Uh, in meeting Moses in the, the burning bush, one of the things that one commentator says about this is not only does God typically meet us on this grand detour that we're on, but there's a micro detour that we have to take. There's another detour we have to take. There's something that happens in Moses' life where he encounters God and he's moving along and he's watching his sheep and he's, he's moving them to wherever, to grass or water, about his menial task and something catches his eye and he moves off of what he's doing and takes a detour to move toward this encounter. He moves toward God in this situation. And, and that in our, in our text is, is a burning bush. But one of the things I want you to see about where you are and how you encounter God is that you've, you've got to look around. You, you've got to begin to hear and see that God is with you where you are. 
That, that he's present and that he's not far removed and he's not holding something behind his back in order for you to figure out what it is so that you can get his blessing, that he's there, he's present. We must stop and have our attention directed away from ourselves, away from our pursuits, away from our idols, away from our sins, away from our self-loathing, away from our pity or our hurt. Somehow we have to have our eyes shifted away from those things onto something else. And here we see what the encounter with God looks like in terms of Moses. The, the encounter is an encounter with a burning bush, right? And we're told, I love the way this is, is um, I don't know, the way this is described in the scriptures. I, I, will, tur- I will turn aside and see this grace. You know, it's like he turns into a Shakespearean actor all this. Oh, a fire, a bush that burns, I shall turn away and see. Uh, it's, it's interesting, Moses is in her dialogue, but Moses sees this great sight and he decides, he talks to himself and he wants to see he's drawn in to this great sight. He moves toward it. And what we've got to see, I think, out of this is that, that, that in order to encounter God, we must understand the kind of God we encounter. And it's that we encounter the God uh, of fire. That's the God we encounter. It's interesting that God shows up throughout the scriptures regularly as fire. I mean, have you ever thought about why? Have you ever thought about what it is about fire that would make that an apt metaphor, an act embodiment of something about God that would be important for us to understand. Well, I think simply we we just see that fire is both beautiful and dangerous. That that fire gives both warmth and death. That that fire is something that we all, I, I mean, we many, many, many of us have had this experience where we've gone camping or we've decided to just have a, a fire. And somewhere along the lines, you just sit there and you just, you find yourself staring at this fire. This, you, I mean, it's, it's almost weird how uh, the human person will sit around and stare into this thing and just watch it. It's beautiful. But, uh, but also, in doing that, we, we put rocks around it and we pour water on it so that it doesn't break out of, of its area. Because if it breaks out, it, it, it destroys. This is how Moses encounters God. He encounters a God who's both beautiful, one who uh, calls and, and, and uh, is, is um, attractive, uh, has a, a glory and a beauty that, that pulls him in. That actually lifts his eyes off the ordinary and off the, the, his life that he's in and uh, pulls his eyes onto something else. And the text doesn't tell us this, but um, I, I just, in my mind, I picture this as being at night. I don't know why. But you've got to think that the, the magnificence of being in the desert in a time where there's no external light where the the moon and the stars at night would would have been all that there's no city lights there's no there's no other way and if you've ever been in a place where it's really really dark how majestic this fire would have looked in that backdrop and moses is drawn to it it actually he says um not it could be translated not that i will turn aside and see but i must There's something about the fire that's attractive, that draws him in, that calls to him, that's beautiful. And yet, as soon as he gets there, he's told, stop. Stop. Don't go any further. Take your shoes off. Because the ground on which you are already standing is holy ground. The way one commentator says it, he's already in the kill zone. He's already in the place of death. Stop, Moses. You cannot come any closer. See, all other things that I think we can conceive of that, that are like maybe other metaphors, we can control. But fire is something that we cannot control. You cannot place your hand in fire and not be burned. 
Fire is, is not something, though it's beautiful, it's not something that we define, that we determine. It's all determining. And when we are approached by fire, it actually shapes us, not the other way around. Fire is both beautiful and dangerous. Part of what we're to see in this encounter with God and part of what we're to understand about the God we encounter is that He's both beautiful and dangerous. And to define God otherwise is, is to miss God. It actually is to miss God and it actually is what often stumps our ability to grow wherever we are. Is because we actually have a God that we've created in our own head. I had this student who asked me this question. Um, and I thought it was one of the most profound questions a student ever asked me. She said, how do you know that you're not just praying to the God in your head? How do you know that what you're praying to is not the construct of your own desires, ideas, about what God is or what God should be. How do you know? And one of the ways you know, by the way, when she asked me that, I said, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> one of the ways the text tells us is, do you, do, does the God you pray to, does the God you have in your mind, does the God that moves you to worship, is he both beautiful and dangerous? Do you define him or does he define you? Does God, the God that you have in your mind that you're praying to, is he ever in your mind, uh, in your life, able to tell you to stop? Do not come any closer. Take your shoes off. Maybe, maybe a way that this is reflected back in, in a wrong way is, I've heard this said, I cannot believe in a God who blank. It's a sure sign that the God that, that's behind that statement is, is it at least partially constructed in that person's mind. They're saying, I cannot believe in a God who actually demands something outside of me or would act in a way that I don't think is right. I had a prominent theologian tell me as we were arguing about theological things that if my vision of God was the right vision of God, he he wouldn't be a Christian. That doesn't prove him right, doesn't prove me right, But it does show something of a problem, right? Because that's really not the issue. It doesn't really, I don't, it it doesn't matter. That, That doesn't prove the point. That's not the bar of decision. The bar of decision is, have we encountered the God of the scriptures who's dangerous and beautiful, who's holy in all of his ways, who has the right to define how we approach him, who has the right to say who he is and who we are and what it takes to encounter him? Is that your God? God is holy and we don't approach him on our own terms. God is free. He's eternal. He's unchanging. Is that the God that you seek? Is that the God that you encounter? Is that the God you turn aside to see? Do you turn aside to see a God who is a God of your own construct, who defines love the way you think love should be defined? Maybe one other way we could say this is, this God that you encounter, does he have the right to say into your life, you're not holy? That that is sin. That um, that is not righteousness. The God who meets Moses is that kind of God, one who is free and eternal. He's beautiful and dangerous. That's where we meet God. Next, we need to see then what is the purpose for meeting 
God. The uh, interesting thing about this is there's um, meeting God is not the only thing that happens in the story that, that Moses is, encounters God. He encounters this beautiful and dangerous God. He's uh, both called in and, and pushed back. And that's a paradox, and there's a paradox in the Christian life. And for some of us, we're so uh, trapped on one side or the other that we think of God in sort of a all-loving sort of way that we want to define him by our own notions of love. Or some of us think of God in, in, in strictly holy terms, and we can't conceive of the fact that he would call Moses in. But he does both. It's both. And we've got to see that it's both. We are not people over here who set up uh, the holiness code and define what it is to be a Christian by some strict moral standard and think that all God is doing is judging those people. He calls Moses in. It's both. That it's both beautiful and dangerous. It both calls us in and keeps us in some sense at arm's length. And this encounter is for a specific purpose. It's not simply to meet God, but we're told that it's, it has a purpose. And it, it comes in some ways in, in two places, I guess. One is in Moses' call, right? Moses says, I will, uh, I will go turn aside and see. God announces himself to him, and then he says, he gives this great statement of who he is. Then, Mo, then the Lord said, verse 7, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. I have heard their cry. I know their suffering. And he comes and he, he says, I am sending you, Moses. So one of the ways that we know how we've that we've encountered the God, the beautiful and dangerous God, is that we are sent that, that we're given a mission. That every time God calls us, he calls us into mission. He calls us into, he, he, he makes us ambassadors. He sends us out. He doesn't simply call us in, but he, he, he calls us in and then sends us out. The second thing, I, I guess maybe this is first in terms of uh, orders of priority. The second thing we see about why we encounter God or the purpose of the encounter God is that we would serve them. Look there in verse 12. He says, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you. And the sign is, is that when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. That God is actually, uh, the encounter with God and the purpose of the encounter with God, and one of the ways that we know we've encountered God is that we've been called to worship Him, and that we're led to worship Him, that we are entering into this place of worship. This life of worship, this posture of worship. And what's interesting about this word here in verse 12 is that it's used 97 times in Exodus, this word, word for serve. And one of the places that I didn't actually read it uh, or, or, or focus on it, but it is found in very prominently in Exodus 1:13 through 14, if you look there. This is what the Pharaoh says about the people of Israel. Or this is what the narrator says about the Pharaoh. He says, so they made the people, and listen, this is how it literally should be translated. This is how they made the people serve with rigor and made their lives bitter with backbreaking service in mortar and brick and with every kind of service in the field, with every kind of service, they made them serve with rigor. It's the same form of the word that's used in, in verse 12 of chapter 3. And what you need to see about this is that part of the story of Exodus, part of the point of Exodus is that there is a clash of gods in Exodus. And the clash is over the question, who will these people worship? Who will these people serve? And Pharaoh exerts all of his force to bring the people of Israel under his service, under his dominion, under his godship. And if you are here this morning and you think, I am not serving anyone, I'm not worshiping anyone, I am just here to find out what you Christians think about some things. One of the things that is clear, I think from this text, that it's clear uh, in in all of our lives, is that we are all serving someone. 
that we are all under the hand of service, that we are made to serve, and that we will serve somebody. And so that the goal of the encounter with God is not simply freedom from the oppressive service of Pharaoh, but it's freedom to serve the true and living God. It's it's freedom is not um, what Americans think of freedom, which is I'm free to make all my own choices and do what I want and make the God in my head. That actually true freedom for God's people looks like service of the living God. It looks like worship. It looks like being a people gathered to his name to worship him. So we might look at this through the lens of, I don't know, the question of what's the greatest commandment. What's the greatest thing that we could do? What's the greatest thing to define whether or not I've encountered God? How do I know that I'm actually living out my purpose as a child of God? And Jesus answers, it's to love the Lord your God, to worship him, and to love your neighbor. Moses gets both here. He gets a call to to the knowledge that this is about worship of God, but it's also about his neighbor. It's about mission. These two things always go hand in hand. You can't worship God rightly if you're not ministering outwardly. And you can't minister outwardly if you're not worshiping God. These two things always go hand in hand. God delivers his people so that they may worship him. And God calls Moses into service in establishing his kingdom. First Peter says it this way. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you. You're both. That an encounter with God always leads to both and a knowledge of both. That we are encountering this God that we're called to worship and we're moved to worship. But we're also moved to tell others. And then the last thing... I'll say about this is um, there's a, there's another part of this that we're after to understand how God meets us where we are and moves us into worship and into witness. And that is really found in the mystery in the text, right? There's this great mystery, this bush that burns or has fire, but it's not consumed, um, that, that's, that's what Moses pulls Moses aside. He, he says, I will turn aside to see this great sight. And how does, how does the burning bush help us to understand what it looks like for us in the midst of our detours to understand what it is to encounter God and in turn, uh, live a life of, of worship and witness? What does that look like? How do we gain that from the burning bush? And, um, uh, Tim Keller helped me see this in this text. Um, he says, he says, look, the burning bush is a mystery. We all understand that. I mean, I've just defined fire as the thing that consumes the things that it touch, right? But, but now we have an example where it's, it's not. It's suspended those properties. And that is a great mystery. But what Keller says is the bigger mystery in the text is Moses. Why is Moses not consumed? Moses has just stepped onto holy ground. We're actually told later on in Exodus that when you uh, things that aren't supposed to touch holy ground, even livestock, they die. And what's interesting about this, we're not going to we don't have time to deal with this part of the, the story. But God calls Moses. You see that, and we see part of it anyway, right? And God says, um, "I'm sending you to do this." And Moses, in verse 11, says. But who am I? And what's so profound about it is verse 7 through uh, uh, 10 are all about I, I, I. God is declaring to Moses what I will do. It's all about who he is as the God of his people, about the God of his promise and what he is going to do. And Moses' retort is, but who am I? Five times Moses says, but God, (laughs) this, this is not right. Your little plan here is not a good one, and I don't think I want to do it. So much so that he begs him at the end to please just send somebody else. Send somebody with me. 
Moses turns into, I, I don't know, I don't think this is a great example of faith. Not in the way we think about it. This, this would probably be categorized, I think, as sin. You know, the living God has just said, I'm going to do this. And you say, but God, I don't think so. It's not a good idea. It's at least born out of, 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 of some deep insecurity and fear that Moses has. And he's not consumed. Why? See, what we're actually told is that this encounter with God is an encounter with the angel of the Lord, verse 2. See, in verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire. And, and throughout the scriptures, the angel of the Lord is described as this thing separate from Yahweh, but is a, in some ways identified with Yahweh. It's both. And what we're to understand about this encounter that Moses has with the living, the beautiful and terrifying God is that it's a mediated encounter. That it's a mediated encounter. It's God condescending in a way that he's able to actually encounter a sinful person with that sinful, without that sinful person being destroyed. The angel of the Lord who represents God and brings to, to uh, picture all of his glory, his holiness, and, and his beauty is also not the full weight of all of those things. And God is both merciful and glorious and holy. We're told that he's merciful. Verse 8, he comes down that God condescends, right? That language is, is, const, is the language that's used down. Verse 8, I've come down. That's regular language used of God uh, uh, coming for his people, intervening in human affairs. That he's the God who comes down, and he's the God that comes down not simply to judge, not simply to be sheer holiness, not simply to be just a consuming fire. But he's a God that comes down in order to bring people up. Again in verse 8. And it's the regular language that's used for deliverance of Israel. That an encounter with God is, is an encounter with a God who condescends and a, a God who delivers. He is not simply holy. Though he is holy. He is merciful. And that in his mercy, he provides Moses with an encounter, but it's a mediated encounter. Years later, there's one who um, is challenged on his authority and uh, over against the authority of Abraham. And this teacher responds that before Abraham was, I am. The very response that Moses gets when he questions the God of fire here is the, is the response that this one gives when he's challenged on his authority and his place in the kingdom of God. And what Jesus is saying is that I am the living God. Come down to bring you up. That God has always uh, made a way or is making a way through the burning bush. And he's pointing to the final way that he will make in order to deliver his people is through a mediator. And actually in this text and in the Exodus, Moses becomes the mediator. But Jesus has come down in order to bring us up. He is the true and living God. He embodies both the beauty and the, the terror of God himself in the flesh. Jesus is the one who mediates his presence. And it's through that. It's through our encounter with Jesus. The mediator, the high priest. Part of what this means is that when you fail or when you're in the wilderness and you're off the beaten path, you're on the backside of the wilderness. Jesus, your high priest, if you've trusted in him, is at the right hand of the Father, and that's actually what defines your position because he's your mediator. See, over here, where you are on the map of whatever you thought your life would be or should be does not define you. It's not that location that defines you. It's the location of that one that defines you. Jesus 
is the one who mediates the presence of God, that enables us to encounter him, enables us to be changed by him, that sends his spirit to call us out, to, be, to have a mission and to serve and worship God. All right. <laughs> that, um, I'll close with this. The last, that last uh, backpacking trip, the miserable one, um, is actually the one I remember the most. And this doesn't exactly fit the, um, the point of the passage, but it does, to, it does in a, in a, maybe in a sideways. And the reason it's the one I remember the most is not because of anything that we got to do on our detour. It's not because of, of uh, I, I, to be honest, all I remember, I don't remember the four days we were there. We re- literally were in this stand of Aspen's in the middle of nowhere that we wanted to be. We went out on a couple of hikes to try to find the lake, never found it, and we just camped right there. That was it. But um, when I got back to the parking lot, I got a phone call. And that phone call was Heather calling me from Australia. And she called me with the news that she was pregnant with our child, our one child, the child we had gone through a lot of prayer and tears over whether or not we would ever have. All of the disappointment, all of the off the beaten path, all of the detour takes on a whole new life when it's reoriented by something else. When it's redefined around something else. Yes, it was a detour. But it was defined, it's defined forever in my mind around something that was glorious and, and, and beautiful. Something that, was, uh, that I'd been praying for. In order for you to understand how you live in the midst of your detours is to understand that you have to have that defined by something else. Your thinking needs to be reoriented around the mediator who has come down and who has died in your place, who has taken your folly, your foolishness, your sin, so that you might stand on holy ground. And so that you might also be a witness for the living God. Once that happens, all this other stuff takes on new meaning, new shape, new life. Amen.